Well, Happy New Year to everybody else. 2022. I don't know about you, I'm feeling 2022. Actually, that's not true. I feel 42 all the time. But it's a beautiful morning. Today, I'm excited. We are going to start a new journey as a church through the biblical book of Revelation. I'm excited to start this with you, but I'll be honest with you and tell you that I am also incredibly intimidated to teach through the book of Revelation. It is one of the most difficult books in all of the Bible to grasp fully. I don't think we can grasp it fully, uh, but we can do our best to study through it to get what God has for us in it. Winston Churchill once said about the former Soviet Union that it was a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma. And that is often what we think when we look at the book of Revelation. Like, How do you even begin to grasp on to all these things that are going on? To many Christians, they don't even want to try. In fact, many churches will never go through the book of Revelation. Some seminaries won't even teach their seminarians' classes through the book of Revelation because there is so much that is difficult to parse through and to grasp onto. But I think it's incredibly important for us to not neglect this book because God put it there for a reason. Because He wants us to see this revelation Another preacher calls it a book that is mysterious, controversial, and neglected by the church because the church does not engage it in the way that it should. It's also a book that some people feel very, very strongly about. They have a a very specific view of Revelation, how it should be read, how it should be understood. And so if anybody says anything, including a preacher, that they don't think lines up with how they view it, they might get very upset. I'll let you know, that will probably happen at some point in the next six months. I will probably say something like, that's not what I think that says. That's okay. I am not standing up here claiming to be the professor of all revelation. I'm a preacher and I'm a pastor who I want to start guiding us through this journey, through this book. And so I'm going to attempt to teach through revelation by giving you a lot of things to think about this book. But I'm going to try most of the time not to tell you what to think. That could be frustrating for some people because some people just like, can you just tell me what it says? Not always. No. But I can tell you what I think it says. I can tell you what a lot of theologians and Bible scholars and pastors for hundreds and thousands of years have been believing that it is leading them towards. But there are some things that are just not going to be fully clear to us Because you cannot teach the book of Revelation as a historical document like we do many of the books in the Bible. Many of the books we can just point back and say, hey, this is what happened at this time. I can teach you about those things. We can talk about the history that was going on around it. And and that's just a, a history class. But Revelation isn't only talking about history. It's also talking about things that have yet to come. And so we're trying to grasp onto something that has not yet happened. It refers to itself as a book of prophecy, meaning that it is speaking about things in the future. So we're not looking back, we're looking forward. Even that statement alone, I will tell you, is controversial to some people. And we'll get more into that. But even a basic statement like that, some people say, well, actually, I think... Okay, 
We'll get there. But there's so much to unwrap here. I want to approach Revelation with a humble attitude as we try to grasp it. My prayer for this series, I mean this, don't lose, it. Don't lose, with, lose me here, okay? My prayer for this series is not that we become obsessed with eschatology or that we start to be anxious and scared of end times or anything like that. I want us to realize that we can know Jesus better through the book of Revelation. I went to a church for many years that became obsessed with eschatology. Everything was end times. Everything was a sign. Everything was reading the, reading the newspaper to see if this was happening, and, and everyone was convinced that the world was ending tomorrow, and it became everything. And I just, I, it lost me because it, it wasn't about Jesus anymore. It was just always about, like, when's the world ending? Please don't go into Revelation thinking that that's what we're studying. The first line of this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a book about Jesus. And that's how we're going to come at this book is we want to learn more about Jesus. Okay, so let me give you some background information about this book. It's called Revelation. It is not called Revelations. Okay? It is a single revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not plural. It is not a whole bunch of revelations. It is a revelation. The word revelation is the Greek word apocalypse, which sounds very ominous to us, doesn't it? What do you think when you think of the word apocalypse? Everything's blowing up, right? Everything's going down. The world is ending. Chaos, collision, all of it, boom. But that is not what that word actually means. It's not accurate. In our society, it has come to be known as that, as chaos and commotion and all things. But the word apocalypse is actually a very simple word. It means unveiling. It means there is something that was hidden that is now not hidden. It has been unveiled. Think about a traditional wedding. You go to a wedding and the bride is at the back of the room and she has a veil over her face. She is hidden from her groom. She comes forward and when she gets there, he unveils her and her face, her smile is a revelation to him. It is an unveiling. That which was hidden is now clear. Or think about maybe a statue that they're putting in the middle of town. You can tell there's some sort of figure underneath this giant sheet, but it is only once the apocalypse happens, once the unveiling happens, that you can see the form of what is truly there. That is the first word of this book. If you read Revelation in Greek, the first word is apocalypse. Which to us, of course, is just like, oh no. But for them, it's just, no. Something new is being revealed. Some piece of knowledge and wisdom that I didn't previously have is now going to be understood. That is what revelation is. There is a future that has been unknown. It has been hidden and veiled. And then suddenly there is an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And that which has been hidden is revealed. This word is used in other places in the New Testament. If you remember the story of Jesus going to the temple when he's only eight days old. 
to be circumcised. And there's an old man in the temple named Simeon. And the Holy Spirit had told Simeon that he would live long enough to see the Messiah. And so Simeon sees Jesus that day in the temple and he says, this is an apocalypse to the Gentiles. He sees Jesus and he says, this is the unveiling of something new. Something that was hidden for an entire group of people in the world. When Peter and Paul, both in their separate books, talk about Jesus' second coming, when he will come again, they talk about that as an apocalypse, an unveiling. Even though I feel like I maybe scared you, even though this book is very difficult to fully grasp onto, there's also a part of it that's incredibly simple. And I know it makes no sense, but it, it, it's so hard to fully grasp. But, but the main idea is so incredibly simple that anybody could understand it. One commentator gave a great illustration. He said some seminary, seminary students were playing basketball in the school gym, which is funny to me because I went to seminary and picturing seminary students trying to play basketball is hilarious. But they're playing basketball and they noticed that the janitor of the school is sitting over in the corner reading his Bible while he's on break. And, and they kind of look over and they, oh, that's funny. So they, they walk over and they say, hey, Mr. Janitor, what are you reading? And he says, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And they think to themselves, well, we're seminary students. We should help him understand what he's reading. And so one of the seminary students says in somewhat arrogant way, he's like, well, do you understand what you're reading? And the janitor very confidently says, yeah, Jesus is going to win. And they say, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. It's an incredibly difficult book to fully grasp, but the main idea is very simple. God's in control. Jesus is going to win. One of my favorite modern scholars, N.T. Wright, speaks about Revelation not as a complicated book, but as clear and sharp. He says, Revelation offers one of the clearest and sharpest visions of God's ultimate purpose for the whole of creation and the way in which the powerful forces of evil at work in a thousand ways, but not the least in idolatrous and tyrannous political systems can be and are being overthrown through the victory of Jesus the Messiah and consequent costly victory of his followers. Which is a big way to say, God's in control, Jesus is going to win. So we have this book, this unveiling, this curtain that is being pulled back so that we can see something new, but where did it come from? Where did we get this book? The human author of the book is most likely the Apostle John. This is another thing that has been debated over hundreds and thousands of years, but most likely, I believe, it's the Apostle John, one of the 12 apostles that lived with Jesus during his three years of ministry in the world. John is the brother of James. Do you remember the sons of thunder? James and John, they're the sons of Zebedee. They are part of Jesus' inner circle, James, John, and Peter. And so there's the 12, but then there's the three that are kind of Jesus' best friends. And then 
John, kind of funny, refers to himself as the apostle whom Jesus loves. That's his self. Yeah, Jesus really loves me, which is kind of arrogant, but at the same time, it's awesome that that's how he felt. When he thought about Jesus, he, oh yeah, me? Jesus loves me. That's awesome. He is the apostle that is entrusted by Jesus to take care of Mary when Jesus is dying on the cross. He is one of the closest people to Jesus, but he's not perfect. In another part of the Bible, him and his brother try to circumvent. They get their mama and they say, hey, Jesus, can we have like a special spot on your right hand and left hand? And he says, you don't know what you're asking. But you are going to understand it by the end of this. So John, he spends his life with Jesus and then he goes on and he, he's actually the only apostle out of the twelve that lives a long life, well into his 80s or 90s. He watches his brother martyred. One of the first people martyred in the church was his brother James. He was beheaded by Herod. He watches as every one of his friends is killed for their faith. He watches all of these things. He watches Jerusalem be destroyed by Titus, the general from Rome. He goes through all of these things, all of this suffering, and then he finds himself, at the end of his life, he is on an island called Patmos. He has been sent there because of his ministry. He's isolated and alone. He has gone through so much, and yet he is still talking about the glory of Jesus as he writes this book. I believe he is the author of the book. One of the most uh, clear evidences of that is that that's what the early church fathers believed. Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, all of these early church fathers who lived in the second century held that John the Apostle was the author of this book. One of the clearest evidences to me that he's the author is that there was a guy named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a disciple of a guy named Polycarp, which is such an awesome name. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. And so Irenaeus is kind of John's like spiritual grandson. And Irenaeus believed that John had written the book of Revelation. So that seems clear to me. The book was written around the year 95 AD, give or take 10, 15 years. Around the year 95, so John is a very old man now. He's in his 80s, 90s. He's gone through all of these things in life, and now he's on this Roman penal colony, Patmos. You can picture almost Alcatraz, if you've ever been out to San Francisco. It's this island that's 25 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. He's out there. It's somewhat ironic that the emperor sent him out there so that he couldn't have any more positive influence on the church. And he goes out there and he writes Revelation, having a positive influence on the church forever. He's most likely there because of the emperor Domitian. You can look this stuff, in, this stuff up in history. Domitian was the emperor of the Roman Empire around this time. And Domitian demanded of all of the subjects of the Roman Empire that they worship him. Not respect him. Worship him as Lord and God of their lives. He even required that they would make sacrifices to him in their homes. And so the church runs into this moment where they have to decide, am I going to heed the words of the Roman Empire 
and worship him as God, or do I heed the words of God, and he is the one true God, and I only worship him. And so they begin to be persecuted for this. They begin to go through significant persecution. This is probably why John ends up out on this island in Patmos, because he refuses to worship Domitian as God. And so he's sent into isolation, and that's where he writes this letter. Well, who's the letter written to? This is another very simple and very complicated answer. It's addressed to the seven churches that are in Asia, which are listed in verse 11, if you want to read that. He's talking specifically about Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And you can see, those are the seven churches that he is talking about. So the simple answer to this is he's writing to those churches. But the slightly more difficult answer is that those churches, if you notice, are spread out, and they're in a big circle. And so most Bible scholars believe that he wrote to those churches knowing that those churches would become ports that would disseminate the information further. And so it wouldn't just go to those seven churches, but it would go beyond those seven churches. Those are major churches that would then push the information to the smaller churches and it would get out to more and more people. The churches in Revelation are listed geographically. We, we probably want to spiritualize that and say, well, like, why, why are they in that order? They're just in order. They're in a circle. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. It just goes in a big circle, starting from Ephesus, where John had been. Now, all of these churches are in extreme persecution because of what's going on in the Roman Empire. And so he's writing to the churches to encourage them. He says, I know what you're going through. I have been cast out onto this island for the same reason, so I know what you're going through, but I want you to understand that God is still in control and that you can trust him. And what's interesting too, you'll see throughout the book of Revelation, there's seven churches. There's seven lampstands, there's seven stars, there's seven seals, there's seven, 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 seven. You probably know in the book of Revelation and prophecy, seven is the number of completion. And so when we talk about seven churches, there's also the idea that we're talking about the complete church, as in the whole church in all time, including us here today. And so the book of Revelation is addressed specifically to those seven churches, but it's also for the complete church, for us today. So we have a pretty good understanding of this. We got this book. We know who wrote it. We know what the title means. We know about what time it was written. We know what these seven churches are. But here's the much more difficult question to answer. What is this book talking about? What is being described in the book of Revelation? When does it take place? Is everything literal or is everything symbolic? What is happening when you start getting into the later parts of the book and there's dragons with horns and and crowns and there's giant beasts and all, like what is happening and to get into this I have to get into the weeds of theology a little bit there's four basic understandings of this book that have been around for hundreds of years the first is the preterist view 
think I have that word up there. The preterist view is the idea that this whole book is only describing things that took place during John's lifetime. That the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD was the fulfillment of the entire book of Revelation and everything that we are reading is actually in the distant past. This is a view that some scholars have held. To me, it doesn't hold up at all. It completely dismisses Revelation's own words that it is a book of prophecy and kind of says, hey, this is just a historical book. This is somebody trying to unspiritualize the book and say, hey, it's just, it, it's in the past. So there's that. There's the preterist view. There's also the historicist view. This is kind of the opposite, that Revelation is a sweeping chart of all of church history from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. And each part of the book is describing a time in church history. There's the Roman Empire, there's the Reformation, and all of the parts of Revelation are talking about different times. Well, this would mean that the book had very little to no meaning for the people that it was originally written to, the seven churches, because it's, it doesn't affect them. There's the idealist view of the book. This is the view, it's, it's kind of a misnomer because it's not really ideal to me, but the idealist view is that there's nothing literal at all about Revelation. It's all just a symbolic story about the, the everlasting struggle between good and evil. Everything is just a picture. And then there's the futurist view. The futurist view is that this is a prophetic book about events that have yet to happen, except for the seven letters that are addressed specifically to the specific churches that we'll get to. Those letters are for those churches at that time, although they affect everything, they affect each other, they affect the world, but that everything from chapter 4 through 22 is talking about things that have yet to happen. This is the futurist view. This is the view that I hold. To me, it is the only one that makes sense because it is the only one that agrees with what Revelation says about itself. That it is a book of prophecy. Things that have yet to come but that it is also a letter written to the individual churches. It doesn't take away from the meaning to them. It doesn't take away from the meaning for us. So, I told you I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm not. But I will tell you, as far as those four views, I hold the futurist view, and that's how I'm going to teach this book for the most part. I think it's the truth. Okay. All of that, we can actually read a few words of Revelation. If you have a Bible or a device, open up Revelation chapter 1. Don't worry, I'm not going to teach through 10 chapters today. Maybe 8 verses, if we're lucky. And I'm, I'm not going to read this in one chunk, I'm just going to kind of go through like line by line, which is a little different than I usually do, but I think it's, it's a good way to go through this. As, as we open up this book, Revelation 1, 1 through 8, Read with me the very first line. We've already talked about this, but we'll talk about it a little bit more. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Notice that again. It is a single revelation. It is not a series of revelations. And notice, what is the revelation about? Jesus. It is not a revelation of end times. It is not a revelation of prophecy. It's not a revelation of beasts coming out of the sea. It is a revelation, an unveiling of Jesus. It is our opportunity to to pull the curtain back and to see a part of Jesus that we did not understand before. The central theme of the book of Revelation is Jesus. People miss this. Even one of my all-time heroes of faith, Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Revolution, Reformation, did not ever teach on the book of Revelation because he said that it didn't talk about Jesus. I don't know what he was reading. Because the very first words say, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Warren Wearsby, a great scholar, said, no believer should study prophecy merely to satisfy his curiosity. When Daniel and John received God's revelations of the future, both fell down as dead men. They were overwhelmed. We need to approach this book as wanderers and worshipers, not as academic students. This book is about King Jesus. Okay. So, book of Revelation, Jesus Christ. Which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Where did the book of Revelation come from? From God. Directly from God. He is the source of this revelation. Not John, the human author. The source is God. And why did God reveal this? Why does he give us this book? So that his servants will understand the things that must soon take place. So that servants like you and me and John, and every, the, the word there is doulos, the bond servants, those who have given their entire life to God so that they can understand what is going to soon take place. Which is another interesting thing, the word soon. You might look at them and be like, soon? That was 2,000 years ago, bro. What do you mean soon? Well, soon is actually an interesting word. The Greek word is ta- tacos, not tacos. Tacos. It's where we get the word tachometer. It means quickly. It means swiftly. It means that once these things begin to start happening, it is going to happen fast, like a thief in the night. It's going to be swift. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we know that when it happens, it will be swift and it will be like a thief in the night. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And so we see this, this revelation goes from God to an angel to John, and then John writes it down and the readers. And so we can see this arc of how it gets to us. And Jesus is in there too because there's the angel, but there's also parts where Jesus just tells John directly. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is awesome. This is the only book in the Bible that comes with a promise of blessing 
if you just simply read it and heed it. Verse 3 tells us there will be a blessing. If you, he says, if you read it or hear it, remember this is first century churches, most people can't read. And so somebody who can read gets up and he reads the whole book out loud. And so John says, if you read this book or you hear this book and then you take it and you apply it to your life and your life is changed by it, you will be blessed. This is one of the reasons I wanted to go through this book. It's because there's a promised blessing from God. That if we can wrap our lives in these words, that we will be blessed. And it means also that Revelation doesn't just contain information about the future, it also contains spiritual formation for our lives. It's not just a history book, it's not just an information book, it is a spiritual formation book that should change the way we live. And then right at the end there it says, the time is near. Again, you're thinking, near? 2,000 years, dude. This understanding of time, the word is kairos, and it talks about imminence. This is a big word in the Christian Missionary Alliance. The imminence of Christ, that it could happen at any moment. The idea of soon isn't that, oh, it's going to happen tomorrow. It's it can happen any time. Think about when a woman is pregnant, and she's like seven, eight, nine months pregnant, and everyone says, soon, right? And she's like, oh, I hope so. Soon doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. It means there is an imminence. There is a desire. It could happen any moment, and we are praying that it does. It is imminently taking place. It's getting close. Greeting to the seven churches. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, John is writing to the seven churches or to the complete church. And in this section, you can see the work of the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did you see that? God the Father is the one who is and was and is to come. And it speaks of the Holy Spirit. It says, interestingly here, it says, to the, to the seven spirits. Now this is another thing that is argued a little bit. It's like, is this talking about seven spirits as in there is a, an angel or a spirit of each individual church? Is it talking about the pastors of each of those churches? Or is it just a way of, ta- of talking about the complete Holy Spirit of God? See, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and then you have the Son, Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, the King of kings. So we see all of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in this speaking, saying this is from God. Verse 5, if you're an underliner, please underline verse 5. If you're a highlighter, underline, highlight, whatever it is. Verse 5 of Revelation chapter 1 is amazing because the entire gospel, the whole story of redemption is found in verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins 
by his blood. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ is God. He is king. And he has freed us from sin with his blood. And this is the lens. I want you to think about this verse as focusing your lens on the rest of the book. On everything else that we will read from here on out. It is through this lens that Jesus Christ is Savior. And that he is worthy of all glory and dominion in this world. Verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. This verse gives us a preview of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's different than the rapture, which we'll get into all that later. But the second coming, when God, when Jesus comes back to to Renew his kingdom in the world. It gives us a preview of that. This is spoken of over 500 times throughout the Bible. And here it says he will come with the clouds, which is another interesting idea. Does that mean he's just coming in the sky and there's cloud, cumulus clouds around him? Or does it mean, like in the Old Testament, when the glory of God was like a cloud about him? Or could it be the cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about, that there are those who have died prior and they come with Christ as a cloud? We don't know. But there's some sort of cloud that comes with God as He comes back. And this tells us that every eye will see Him. Imagine if you were reading this letter a couple thousand years ago and you're thinking, how could every eye in the world see this? That would make no sense to you whatsoever. But if you're reading it today, you're like, that makes perfect sense. Everyone in the world's got an 8K camera in their pocket. If the sky opens up and God starts coming down, everyone's going to be like, holy cow. And that's going to be on every screen, every news outlet, every TV station, every internet site is going to have that. And every eye in the world will watch this take place. He will come and every eye will see it. It is going to be cataclysmic. It is going to be worldwide. This is even the ones who pierced Him, their eyes. This is speaking about God's people, Israel, that rejected Him at His first coming. And now they are realizing that they missed the Messiah. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. This is speaking of everyone else, the Gentiles, And they will wail. And this isn't a wail like, yay. This is wailing like, oh, we messed up. He was the Messiah. And now there is divine judgment coming. And we're in trouble. In verse 8, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I'm not telling anybody to get a tattoo, but my very first tattoo is a Greek Alpha Omega symbol on my back. I love this verse. It says, I and the Alpha and Omega says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. This speaks to the complete power of God. And remember, he's writing at this time to churches that are undergoing extreme persecution because the political systems are against them. He's talking to us today and persecution that goes on in the world now. And he says, in light of all of that, I want you to remember something. I am the Alpha and the Omega. 
Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. He's not just saying, I'm the A and the Z. He's saying, I'm the A and the Z and everything in between. I am all of it. I, I'm the one who was. I'm the one who is. I'm the one that will come. There is nothing that you can endure in this life that I am not in control of. I am the Almighty God. That word, the Almighty in Greek, is a fun word to me. I don't know why, but I get weirdly obsessed with words sometimes. The word pantokrator. It just sounds awesome to me. Pantokrator. Supreme over all things. He's speaking to people that are struggling, that are in pain, that are being persecuted, and he says, I am pantokrator. I am supreme over all of things. And he's basically looking at them, and in modern language, he would just look at them and say, I got you. I'm in control. You don't have to worry about all of that. And that idea hit me so hard this week. I told you, I get weird about words. I walked around my house for like a whole evening. In my head, I just went, Ponto Krator. Pantocrator. It's just such a cool word to me. And it's so full of meaning. The Almighty God, the Pantocrator. And I started thinking about that. And I have to admit this. A little bit of embarrassment. I admit this to you. As I was thinking this week, I didn't feel great this week. I didn't leave my house for like four days. And I realized I, I wasn't looking forward to New Year's Eve or New Year's. And, and I didn't know why. Because usually I would get excited about New Year's. And the excitement of like a new beginning like we talked about last week and, and fireworks and, and all that stuff. And I just, it just kind of hit me like I'm not, I have no excitement. There's just apathy this week. And I started to think about that. And I realized it's because I've become, I've become very pessimistic about the state of the world that we live in right now. And as I was thinking about 2022, I wasn't thinking about all the things that I should be excited about. I wasn't thinking about my family and the amazing ways that we've been blessed. I wasn't thinking about this church and the amazing way that it has grown and God has provided for it and, and just amazing things are happening. I wasn't even focused on stupid small things like the Packers have the best record in the NFL. In case you didn't know. I wasn't focused on any of those positives. As I looked towards 2022, all I was thinking about was more COVID, more travel restrictions, more politicians and news people screaming at each other, more cancel culture, more wokeness. I was thinking of all these things, and I was just like, I don't want any more of this. And I was just apathetic. None of that even compares to like actual persecution that this early church was going through but I just started getting lost in all of that and God used his word in revelation to wake me up this week and one specific word pantocrator I am the almighty these churches are going through persecution and we're going through a weird world times and it's so easy to just get caught up in all that and become apathetic and negative and pessimistic and yet God says I am Pantocrator. I have everything under control 
I am the Alpha and Omega. I have got you. I know for a fact there are people in this room right now who have had a much worse week than I have. Maybe you have too. Maybe you are in need of encouragement like these seven churches were. Struggling with life and just saying, I need to know that God is still in control. I hope that as we continue to dive into Revelation, that the thing that you keep with you this week is that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he talks about himself at the beginning of this book as the Pantocrator, the Almighty God who has you in his hands. And that nothing in this world, whether it's persecution in the first century or just crazy political times or COVID or disease or death itself, nothing can take control of our lives if we are His. Because He is Pantocrator. Katie, you can come up. I want you to understand that He is the Almighty. And that is the lens that we view everything else from. If you are a child of God, then your future is set and sealed. You will spend eternity in the light of the glory of God and no weapon of this world, no political tyrant, no disease, no persecution, not even death can rip you out of the hands of the Alpha and the Omega who is and was and is to come, the Almighty, the Pantocrator. I hope that sticks with you this week. Because I know, you just look around people's faces, that's, that's hitting a nerve. We need to know that the Almighty God is in control, just like the early church needed to know that. And so John writes them this letter of encouragement and of power. He says, God has got you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your book of prophecy and knowledge and wisdom. God, I'm going to try my best to unpack Revelation. Please help me to do so well. But this week, let us just focus on who you are. That it is your revelation, Lord. That you are the central figure in it and that you are the central figure in our lives and that no matter what we endure and go through, you have got us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for loving us.